You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Welcome to Plato's Cave, a film criticism show here on 3RRR, that's 102.7 FM. My name is Thomas Cordell, I'm joined by Josh Nelson and Cerise Howard. Good evening to you both. Good evening. Very good evening to you, Thomas. We're going to look at the documentary Citizen 4, where filmmaker Laura Poitras captures on camera the moment that whistleblower Edward Snowden revealed to journalists the extent in which the United States National Security Agency is spying on its own citizens. I meant to say, actually, we've got something of a civil rights theme tonight. All three films that we're looking at explore issues of civil rights, abuses and and resistance. We're going to also look at Selma. This is a, a film about the events surrounding the 1965 march in Alabama, USA, where African-American civil rights leaders, which included Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., campaigned for their voting rights to be recognised. And finally, we're going to look at Rosewater, the first feature film written and directed by The Daily Show's John Stewart. Rosewater portrays what happened to journalist Mazia Bahari when he was imprisoned while reporting on the 2009 Iranian presidential elections. Let's talk about Citizen Four. I'm normally not a fan of documentaries where the documentary filmmaker puts themselves into the narrative unless it's really, really necessary. This is an example of a film where it is really, really necessary. She's very much part of this story. And to her credit, despite being such an important part of the story, she actually remains off-camera an awful lot of this film. Laura Poitras has made what she is referred to as the post-9-11 American trilogy of documentary films. She made the film My Country, My Country in 2006, which focused on the Iraq War. In 2010, she made The Oath, which focused on Guantanamo Bay. And now Citizen Four is the final part. The film opens with uh, with Laura Poitras telling us that she's under surveillance from the US government um, and she's on the Department of Homeland Security's watch list uh, for the previous film she's made, which have been very critical of the American government and their involvement in the so-called War on Terror. And this is the reason Edward Snowden contacted her. She was on his watch list so, and she was reporting on the kind of things he wanted to bring to her attention. And, and I'm going to give you a bit of background information because I actually was only vaguely aware of who Edward Snowden is and what his significance is. He was, well, he still is a computer expert. He had worked for the CIA. He'd been a, a counterintelligence trainer at the Defence Intelligence Agency. And until recently, he'd been working as a contractor for companies working for the National Security Agency. He was working on a consultancy basis. And so in May 2013, he met with filmmaker Laura Potler Laura Poitras, and also the journalist Glenn Greenwood, who mainly writes for The Guardian. And Snowden began the process of leaking to the media via these two highly classified documents that reveal the extent in which the US government is spying on their own citizens. And we also found out the extent in which this was happening globally. So it's a fairly matter-of-factual, almost dry documentary. We have very simple white intertitles appearing on a black background that give us key details of key events and other key players leading up to the leaks. I think the only stylistic flair in the film is this very oppressive drone of the Nine Inch Nails instrumental composition that's used on the soundtrack. But once we get through a lot of the background material, we get to the scenes where Poitras is holding a camera filming Snowden's first set of revelations to Greenwald. And this is amazing stuff. This is history unravelling on on camera. And this is this is a moment that has a profound effect 
over the last 24 months, everything that's happened since, on the way we've understood political discourse and the debate using and the debate surrounding the use of technology and and personal liberties. So, in a sense, I think this is quite a simple, straightforward film. But the strength in this film is, oh my god. The filmmaker had a camera there the moment Snowden was telling journalists um, that he has verifiable information that the US government is spying on its own citizens and therefore committing a gross breach of civil rights. Yeah, look, that is a very significant moment in time. Um, and uh, But for me too, what's really interesting about this film is... Uh, Capturing on camera Snowden's own grappling with uh, what's personally at stake. The, the personal in this is every bit as much as the uh, universal is of great interest here because Snowden realises that his life, as well as those he's drawing uh, into his immediate circle here, um, uh, will never be the same again, not even remotely. And of course, one of these most extraordinary ironies is that Snowden is now holed up uh, in. Uh, he sought asylum in Russia, of all places. I mean, this is just a, a Cold War paradoxical, you know, super mega ironic situation. And, you know, that's, um, the fallout from this uh, whole scenario is, is far from limited to the US. And I mean, here we are in Australia in 2015, and these metadata laws, which no one seems to be able to articulate to us anyway, uh, though the implications of what uh, they do concern are actually spelled out in this film. If anyone is curious about what we might be facing here in Australia. Um, this film is all the more recommended viewing for that too. Um, you know, it, it's, it's extraordinary. It's, it's very unsettling. Um, and I can't really, of course, uh, with good conscience, spoil the, uh, the ending to this film, but there is a, a sequence toward you know, the very close where Everything that is already uh, being spelled out to us is, and is clearly extremely sinister. I mean, we've never been so, so surveilled in all our lives. And, um, you know, was that ignorance bliss? I'm not uh, at all convinced it was. But then, um, you know, to trying to come to terms with the magnitude of, of how, um, how observed we are, um, uh, it's, it's uh, quite devastating. And um, there's a lot there that requires a bit uh, of time to absorb, I feel, especially after that closing sort of sequence josh yeah look this is an interesting documentary and i think part of what, what distinguishes it from a number of other s documentaries that deal with similar issues in terms of well like poetress is dealing with post 9 11 kind of u.s culture and politics particularly foreign affairs and, and homeland security and so on is the decision to move away from a typical dramatic structure or a structured narrative like a kind of a cause and effect three-act narrative with sort of surprises and reveals to kind of keep an audience interested and actually falls back on the confidence of the material and, and the subject to keep what is basically a series of protracted interviews in a hotel room over over a number of days. So the film in, in some ways sacrifices the, the drama you might get in, a, in an otherwise documentary, which is a dangerous thing, I think, or, or, or it's a, clearly a decision that, that could have gone either way. I have to say, in some ways, there were moments in this film where I was aware of the fact that I was sitting in in this room with Edward Snowden, kind of getting information, a lot of which I was sort of familiar with to various degrees. But there are other moments where I think this sort of structure worked, and that's we get a, a sense of Snowden as a as a human. And what I found really striking, which I wasn't aware of, was just how articulate he is. And he's a young man too. I mean, this is a guy probably in his what late twenties. It feels like it looks right, yeah. Mm. Um, and he's very articulate and, and incredibly self sacrificing and I think maybe that's 
what, at least in part, Poitras was trying to convey by, by keeping it in such an intimate type setting and, and, and type structure. Um, and, I th- and I think that works because so much of the mainstream media, you know, we mentioned Fox News and various other kind of outlets, have portrayed Snowden in a similar way to people like Julian Assange, who has a cameo in this film, as these kind of nutter, dangerous whistleblowers who are bringing down America. And that's, you know, this, I think, if film is very much an antidote to that type of um, type of press. I think the film's quite um, uh, aware of that as, as well. Um, but the other thing I think, and, and this is another kind of question, I guess, that the film, at least the filmmaker may have had to confront, is the story's not over. I mean, this is a, and this is another thing where I had, I guess, some minor reservations about the film. It doesn't feel like we've actually got the full story, and part of that is because well, there is no full story. This is an ongoing issue. And again, that lends the film a somewhat uh, anticlimactic conclusion, and yet I think it's important because the director's made a decision that this film obviously has a political aim as well and an angle, therefore releasing it before we know what may, may or may not happen to Snowden is timely. And as you mentioned, Cerise, particularly timely in this country given the current debates circling around issues of metadata. There is a sense of urgency, I think, to this content, which is maybe they just felt we've got to get this out now and we've got to give Snowden a voice now before we go any further with this. We've got to start engaging the public with who he is and what he said. I just looked it up. He's 31 now, so he was 29 when these events yep. took place, which is extraordinarily young. And yet he is very articulate. Um, and he speaks very confidently at the start of the film where he was talking about how he wants to release all the information he's happy for his name to be out there he doesn't want the story to be about him he doesn't want that cult of personality but he doesn't mind being accountable for what he's doing um and he's you know he he talks i mean one of the best things is when he actually engages with the i suppose the 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 ethics of what he is doing and he expresses his point of view very eloquently you know he says um you know he's very worried that governments are sacrificing the freedom and the privacy of its citizens and he's and he uses the great expression it limits boundaries of their intellectual freedom if people aren't afraid, if people are afraid to say what they're they're thinking and to have discussions and look up information, and because, you know, their the intellectual freedom is going to be stifled. Over the course of this film, when we see him sort of day after day, what is fascinating and, and quite upsetting in many ways is seeing the the slight deterioration in his his condition. I mean, he looks more dishevelled. He, I, d- I don't think. He had braced himself for what, was going to, for what was going to happen to an extent, but I don't think he was ready for the enormity of it. And you can see he's really shaken and getting upset. And you know, there's one sequence where the phone just keeps ringing, and you, you know, you know the, the media frenzy has has begun. Um, yeah, look, I think this is the story that had to get out there as soon as possible. Uh, again, there's one line where he says it's not science fiction; this stuff is happening. And I couldn't help think of sort of 1990s techno thrillers, films like Enemy of the State, and that kind of stuff we were worried about in the 70s as well some of the paranoid films that came out in the 70s and and this film is showing us this is the reality it's happening and there is very much that that final scene of this film which could have come from a spy thriller like what they're actually having to do to communicate with each other could have come out of any spy thriller in the 70s i think this is a really important film and i I can see why they got it out there as soon as possible yeah it's uh it's strong stuff it's very dense but i think uh director laura poitras is also very smart in keeping a lot of that relatable personal drama at the forefront of the film as well so he Snowden's an eminently sympathetic character it's so hard uh, for us I think for any of us as viewers to really grasp the magnitude of what his uh, act involves I mean it's still going to be um, the fallout for this is for months years to come uh, but look yeah it's um, it can be heavy going but it's worth it uh, when you get to that end it's it's powerful and um, 
God knows what the Oliver Stone uh, film dramatising this whole episode uh, will be like. But I do look forward to George, uh, was he? Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Snowden, um, Zachary Quinto played Green... Glenn Greenwald. Really? Yes. Is that happening? Apparently, apparently. Who's playing Glenn Greenwald? Uh, Zachary Quinto. Uh, Spock. I can see that yeah. working. I can see that working, yeah. yeah there's enough of a resemblance if, in if, each if, instance. If you found Citizen Four too restrained in style, um, <laughs> yeah. I think Oliver Stone will correct that for you. <laughs> oh, he'll probably overcompensate. Um, yeah, look, I think the, the Glenn Greenwald presence is interesting, and I think it comes back to something you just mentioned, Thomas, in terms of the Sno- Snowden's character, uh, his personal character. Um, and, and that is, he says that I don't want to make the decision in terms of what is least and what isn't i think it's not it's not my responsibility i don't want um, my own personal values or judgment um to kind of influence this i think it needs to be a journalist so the film is really sort of elevating the status of well official professional journalism to make those kind of moral decisions in a broader context which again takes the ego out of out of his act in a way that say some of these other people who we've seen uh seem to be a little bit different perhaps if i can put put it that way um we also it's also worth mentioning because we discussed one of his documentaries last year jeremy scale um uh, appears towards the end very briefly in this documentary i think he's listening or he's discussing something with with snowden who uh, wrote Dirty Wars, and then there was a documentary based on that last year. So again, there's, some, there's a number of links here between what's going on in America at the time and um, and the kind of the way in which popular culture is um, receiving and interpreting it. That's Citizen Four. Three triple R. You're listening to 3 Triple R. This is Plato's Cave. We're doing a bit of film criticism. We're looking at civil rights films that are out in the cinemas at the moment tonight, and we're going to turn our attention now to Selma. Selma, yes, from director Ava DuVernay. Um, this is a film, I guess you could loosely describe it as a biopic, but perhaps more as a sort of the, a subset of the biopic-type genre, where rather than trying to concentrate on a subject or a character's entire life or a protracted breadth of that life, what we have here in the case of Martin Luther King Jr. is looking at a specific event that was a, that was key in that person's life and, and a, clearly a key historical and cultural event as well. And as, Tom, as Thomas, you mentioned at the beginning of the show, Selma focuses on the 1965 protest march from Selma to Montgomery in Alabama and the various machinations behind that. So in this sense, from a genre point of view, it's probably similar to something more like Invictus or Capote. But look, what I I find fascinating about this film is the structure that uh, DuVernay has employed here because the film actually opens with King receiving the 1964 Nobel Peace Prize and what we get is a lot of the the, the background scenery that discussion with his his wife and i guess that one of the key conflicts that the film goes to explore is the question about um his personal motives the way in which he presents himself or sees himself within the broader protest movement the threats to his life and and his family and i guess these questions that a lot of these sort of figures um try and encounter and that is you know is the does the ends justify the means what how far how much would you sacrifice for for the the civil rights in, in in this case and then we get a moment which is sharp it's shocking and it's unexpected of violence and we, we cut to a, a church we see a church exploding and, and from, from within um, and, and a number of children being killed and it's very abrupt and this really sets the pattern of the structure of the narrative is these discussions both personal and political broadly cultural and also deeply personal followed by these moments that enter into or interrupt the narrative of short sharp unexpected violence and I think it's a really smart structure um, and, I, and I think it really kind of in some senses is a, almost an analogy to the protest movement this attempt or this movement 
trying to kind of you know force the issue in terms of the politics trying to regain some sense of of momentum and achieve something and then those inevitable setbacks which we keep happening and this is the kind of the obstacle so the narrative structure is really smart in terms of of what the film uh, is exploring the other thing i think that's worth mentioning here and it's one thing that the film i think struggles with at various points is in order to insert exposition and we have certain scenes within these dialogue moments where we have characters who are key leaders within the protest movement explaining things to each other which they clearly would have been aware of but it's for the audience's benefit and i think in some ways that is part and parcel of the genre it's part and parcel of what the film's intention is which is i think in in one sense to enlighten the audience as to what was going on and just how horrific the kind of legislative against african-americans was particularly in the south and you know i should have mentioned at the start that the protest march was primarily about um, achieving equal voting rights unencumbered voting rights for for particularly african-americans in the south so look maybe that's a kind of a leaping off point but one thing i do want to say is as much as i enjoy this film i think this is a good example of this type of genre i I don't think i was blown as blown away as some people have been by this film i think the performances across the board are really strong maybe we can come back to some of those later but yeah i think this is a polished genre film in that kind of biopic area i think this is a very good film that comes close to excellence and i think there are aspects of it that i thought were excellent um yeah it has been really warmly received and people have found it quite a relief and i think that is because we're a bit sick of some of the the more stagnant form of biopics so i think the fact that this is a little bit better than most means maybe it's been elevated in the minds of some more than it would be in in another year nevertheless i really did like this film and it's a film that's really stayed and stayed with me and, and, and played on my mind and I, I like the way it captured the scene um, I'm a big fan, I think we talked about this a bit last week Josh, of um, biopics like this which are about a specific moment or point in time, rather than trying to tell you an entire character's life, it shows you a very important incident and we get a sense of who they are through the way they interact in that incident and I think we get that with Martin Luther King this is the first film ever to make martin luther king a main character we haven't his life hasn't been portrayed to any extent like this on film before that's kind of horrifying actually (laughs) um so nothing else that's amazing but i think the film is very i think there's a very much of an ensemble going here king is the central figure but i think the film does a lot of good work acknowledging all the other players involved there are a lot of other civil rights leaders this wasn't actually a march he necessarily led he was there for very important moral support and political leverage, but other people led this march, and I think the film does a good job of recognising that, and maybe that's where some of that stuff that feels a bit too much like exposition comes from. It's sort of acknowledging these these plays that 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 we aren't as aware of as we are with, with King. Um, I think there's some good personal political stuff here. I think there's a real sense of how the movement was fuelled by a, a strong sense of morals uh, or, or, or ethics. Um, I, I, I can never work out the difference between those two. Um, but it also shows us the, 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 the pragmatic approach to what they were doing. Like I like the fact they acknowledged that non-violence was also very strategic. They couldn't go up against the weapons. Uh, and I like the, film that the, I like the fact that the film is what 
the movement is. So that it's a non-violent film. You're not getting that rush of satisfaction with the protesters fighting back and beating up racist cops. The film's not going to give you that because that's not what the movement is about. And I also found it a very modern film. I think some of the references in the film, uh, the, the, the song that's nominated for that plays over the end credits, which sort of introduces a hip-hop element, I think there's these little touches that makes the film modern to remind us that these issues are still quite important and relevant today, especially the bit where Johnson is talking about he doesn't want to deal with the voting rights because he's focusing on the war on poverty, whatever the hell that is. And using that expression straight away makes us think of the war on terror and also the war on drugs and, and whatever. So I found this quite a modern, refreshing film that, um, yeah, it really stayed with me. It's curious, actually, Thomas, how you mentioned that there are other figures who appear in this film who have had their biopics, um, but not uh, Dr. King himself. That is odd. Mm. And Malcolm X, a very tokenistic appearance by uh, or someone playing Malcolm X in this. Good dead uh, ringer too. It was a really impressive lookalike. Yeah, yeah not, not at all bad. <laughs> that was good casting, yeah. yeah it, was, it was good casting but just, uh, I guess, you know, they had to have him in there. But the fact that he did uh, represent quite a different approach to uh, taking on the white man is uh, its really uh, glossed over, you could say. You don't, there's really not for me, this is my main problem with this film, is that there's not enough uh, antagonism. Uh, Dr. King is, I mean, yes, obviously we know he's, he's standing for uh, the, the, the right thing to do, but we really don't get that much of a sense of conflict. We, we know that there are evil forces working in the uh, White House who would try to actually bring him down, and we see these Machiavellian types, uh, whether it's J. Edgar Hoover or um, Lee, Lee um, somebody or other, snivelling, uh, slimy little snake-like character. Um, There's George Wallace. Yeah, well, I'll come to him in a moment. Too, Sorry, but yep. they, These folks, are, they, they discuss trying to uh, sabotage Dr. King, especially if they can somehow get between him and his wife. And then that's just more or less dropped for the whole film. It's brought up and, and it's not really explored. And, and in a way, I think, that it, well, yes, this film would have just gripped me a lot more if there was some real sense that they weren't going to prevail, even though, of course, we know they're going to because this is historical historically documented and we know they're not going to take that great a liberty with the truth in this to you know so us that the march failed for example so uh that uh, i struggled with and also really struggled with some casting why were british actors uh president johnson and governor george wallace respectively especially such recognizable actors as tom wilkinson and Tim Roth. I mean, come on. A good old southern boy and you cast Tim Roth? Sure, he does a fine impersonation, a good accent, but really? For a film which I think wants to tap into some really uh, authentic feelings about race and um, power dynamics and all of that, I really think the casting should have been a bit more authentic. I didn't think it necessarily as a criticism of the film, though I did actually not note that down as a just a curiosity of why perhaps these figures like LBJ, um, played by Tom Wilkinson, and Tim Roth, as you mentioned, as Wallace, were distinctly British uh, actors. I mean, you know, I think they all pull off their accents to varying degrees. Probably Wilkinson's the lesser of the of the three. And I wonder if it's a throwback of you know if these are going to be the representative villains of the kind of the of the white institutions that the that, that um, Dr. King's up against, then it actually is sort of that uh, throwback to sort of 1940s, 1950s when the villains could be British and it was sort of like it's easier for an audience to buy it if they weren't actually American actors 
playing these characters. One of the criticisms that we discussed last week when we were talking about these you know, quote-unquote based-on-true-story films was the, the attention to truth and history and the veracity of, of what actually took place, um, end quote. Um, I think one of the key criticisms of this film, which I think is fascinating in that context of race, is the way in which LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, is presented because there are a number of scenes in which he's seen, clearly seen as a sort of a devious Machiavellian type figure. He's he's the one, in fact, who says to Edgar Hoover, that's it, go, go get him sort of thing um, in terms of spying and listening to him which seem a little bit out of step with, apparently, what Baines Johnson was actually like in terms of his role within the broader civil rights movement. That's not to say he was somehow a, a wonderful leader, but that he, he wasn't the kind of the villain that he's portrayed in this film. In fact, Robert Kennedy was the one who signed the FBI order to have Martin Luther King spied on by the FBI. So there's this almost like the, the film couldn't, you know, get past that sacred cow of the Kennedys being the, the good guys, which has such a kind of a standing in, in popular culture. So that was one interesting... The other thing I, I guess I, I wanted to mention, and it's something that you sort of touched on, Cerise, was the emotional connection with this film. And I felt that maybe that's one thing that I never really had. I mean, I appreciated it on, on those levels I mentioned before, but there was really only one scene where I felt a kind of a, a connection to King and, and the characters, and that was the moment where what well, takes place when a, um, a father's identifying his son who's been killed in one of the protests, the lead-ups to the to the protest march. Um, and it's a kind of a, a personal moment between him and, and the uh, Oyelowo character. Um, and I found that really touching. That kind of movement, it was a moment where I guess the film tried to strip away the King we see in the public persona when he's giving these very eloquent, you know, very charismatic speeches to someone who actually did have a heart behind the scenes and, and we saw the personal toll. And I, and I don't think we often got that, even in those more private moments that the film gives us. Often, um, and it's something that I had a problem with in the, the Nelson Mandela film, The Long Walk mm-hmm. to Freedom, which didn't, didn't work at all because it didn't distinguish between public and private but i think this film worked best when it tried to kind of explore that dynamic or that conflict between those two i guess sides of, of this character i yeah i'm I just emotionally connected with it more I, I found it very moving and i think my feeling about this film was it was trying to show us an excerpt from a larger picture a, a slice of life there, there almost isn't a, a clear end and um a start point and an end points they've got that classic technique at the end of the film where it told told you whatever what, what happened to other people next and we actually see a very minor character we hadn't heard from much in the film and it just reminds us that something really horrible happened to this character to let us know that the struggle wasn't over this didn't solve things it was ongoing so i actually like that almost fragmented it was like maybe watching an episode from a, a you know a, a long form series that you just dipped in so that's sort of my way of defending what could seem like they, a sort of more sort of choppy collection of scenes that weren't what seen all the way through. And there is so much to explore in this film. It definitely felt like an HBO-type TV miniseries. That's what I was thinking. I thought yeah. maybe it would have worked even more effectively if it had been in that kind of um, format. Yeah, I'd, I'd like, like to really... see all these actors continue these roles. Oh, absolutely. And I, I had no problem with the casting, but I, I'm very much... I, this is a huge discussion that we may have, have next segment, actually, but um, I just think actors are actors. They're, they're, they're hired oh, to no, portray somebody <laughs> different. No, I, I wasn't seeing Tom Wilkinson or um, you know Tim Roth and thinking that they're English actors playing Americans. Well, I, I saw the characters they inhabited. What about... Uh, it's not quite the very opening scene, but we're seeing uh, a woman who is meant to be in every woman just mm. wanting uh, to cast a vote. Nothing more grand than to cast a vote. 
as her what ought to be her inalienable right as an everyday human being, and it's played by Oprah Winfrey. Yeah, but she wasn't an every woman. She was Annie Lee Cooper, who was a very important civil rights activist. So, yes, but uh, do we know that at the beginning? She's just someone who's you know, uh, again. I, it doesn't matter. No, it matters that, 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 to me. That's that, me. That, I, 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 I look past casting. I, I, I liked her in this as well. And it's, similarly, I struggled with Martin Sheen. I mean, you get a guy like that and give him a cameo as a judge. I think it's just, actually that did make me think of the West Wing. Sure, you can have that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, while we're on the on the subject of representation, there was one thing, and it comes back to that point I made earlier about the sudden moments of shocking violence. And we do see this, and of course, most of the the, the victims of the violence in the film are, are the African Americans. But there's one moment which is probably the most graphic act of violence in the film in which we see a person being kicked in the face and then hitting the sidewalk and the noise reminded me of American History X and that particularly gruesome scene involving Edward Norton um, and yet the victim in this case is a white uh, white man and I thought it was strange that the most hyper stylized graphic scene of violence that we see in the film and the victim is actually given the broader context of these horrific crimes that are being perpetrated against the, the blacks was reserved for a white character it seemed like such a strange decision stylistically and I'm not sure whether that's a case of Josh's reading too much into this or whether there's, there was something actually worth teasing out in that kind of that key moment we're going to have to keep moving on. <laughs> no, I think it's, 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 a, it's an interesting point. I think like, I think Selma is definitely a film people should should see because it, depending on where you fall regarding how much you liked it or not, and I think you've heard three viewpoints here which are all sort of side-by-side side on a spectrum. I think there's a lot to talk about, and, and these issues of, of race are just so in, in, incredibly important, uh, you know, Go and see Selma and have, have the conversation yourself. Listen back to us and, um, I don't know, stalk us on Facebook and Twitter and go to the Triple R um, website and look up Plato's Cave. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and email that way, actually. We'd love to know your thoughts on this and, or any other film that we've spoken about as well. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. And now to Rosewater, the directorial debut of noted uh, American satirist John Stewart. In fact, the man that um, many Americans of a certain uh, educated, perhaps 25 to 34, and, and beyond demographic, look to for their news coverage of American and foreign affairs, rather more than actual typical news programs. Uh, there's, of course, a great sense of anticipation for his directorial debut. Um, not least now, as it arrives in Australia, we've learnt that he's leaving the Daily Show and um, crushing the spirits of many of the <laughs> likes of me who's barely been able to see it for ages anyway because free-to-air TV hasn't picked it up here for some time. I think, what, did Fox even seize it? Uh, probably one of his biggest enemies. The greatest irony. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. So, uh, Rosewater, um, if we were expecting a satirical film, well, this, uh, there's a bit of that in here, but this is largely based on um, true events, which do actually tie in uh, The Daily Show. It concerns an, uh, a journalist who worked for Newsweek magazine, uh, played here by Gail Garcia Bernal, and uh, we will come to... Some Something we mentioned in our previous review about actors and whether their casting is important or not, because I think it is important that he's cast here as an Iranian journalist. Um, he is uh, a man who is uh, covering the 2009 election, presidential election in Iran. It is not expected to be a fair election. President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad has been in office since 2005, and it is widely expected that he will win this next election, and probably not fairly, but what are you going to do? And 
The film begins with uh, the with Mazia Bahari with his wife in the UK. We, we get a sense um, that uh, you know he's, all is, is well. It's all fairy tale stuff. She's pregnant. Everything's going to be great. But then we go back uh, nine. In fact, no, we don't. We, we do start in Iran, don't we? He's getting visitors. Sorry, I only saw this two days ago. It's already a blur. <laughs> Um, two or three days ago, and uh, yes, sinister visitors to his uh, dwelling, um, the, the family home in Iran. Nine days earlier, uh, fairy tale stuff with his wife, who is pregnant. Um, the problem is, as we realise, um, that he is going to be persecuted and, and uh, interrogated rather meanly by the Iranian regime uh, for covering the uh, the fallout from the election results and. Um, so half of this film is basically almost torture porn, you could say, if you're if looking for a genre to, to funnel it into. Uh, and, look, it's not without some satirical touches and some weird sort of daily show infographic-type touches where, for example, a scene early on, Mazia um, Bahari, uh, just with voiceover, explains something of his family history and how he has lost other family members to persecution from different Iranian regimes of uh, bygone eras. And as he wanders uh, the shops around him and, and various other uh, surfaces, but windows especially suddenly fill with images of these people. And it's quite an odd little uh, uh, special effect, which is frankly quite gratuitous, but um, you know, I think that's trying to position us in the here and now. This is the media landscape we presently inhabit. Yeah, look, like both uh, yourself and Thomas, I have an abiding love of, uh, of John Stewart and all he's sort of stood for, particularly over the last five or six years as a, well, not a lone voice, but soon he'll hand over the lone voice responsibilities to John Oliver as a political satirist in the States, perhaps. Anyway, look, I found this a really frustrating experience, which is, I hate saying because I had such high expectations, perhaps unfairly given the shift of, of, of format, but I think what frustrated me the most is this film has all the hallmarks of and, and uncertainties of a debut feature director in terms of some of the stylistic approaches and, and the one you just mentioned, Cerise, in terms of the use of voiceover felt particularly clunky. Um, the construction of the characters uh, feel incredibly two-dimensional, particularly the um, the performance, although I think he's a great actor, of Kim um, Bodnia, the Danish actor as an Iranian, um, well, sort of interrogator. People might know him um, best from the fantastic show The Bridge. There's also this sort of strange tonal disjunction where we get moments of, of quite serious scenes and then almost offset by comic moments that aren't quite pulled off, particularly in the, in the way that we often see in um, in his work as a, as a satirist. And I felt stylistically this film really reminded me of, of a Danny Boyle film in terms of the, the hyperkinetic approach, every, the, the quick cutting. There was, there's so, such a lack of stillness in this film, which I think is to its detriment, particularly given the key thing or the key conflict revolves around Bahari being in prison for almost 120 days, and yet we zip through his entire imprisonment in a kind of a montage sequence, which you know is, is over and done with in just a couple of minutes. And I felt like I didn't connect with the film. I didn't know what, what he were aiming for. And I think the film also suffers a little bit, and this is, I guess, a personal sort of taste or preference. It's incredibly well-meaning. And, look, that's not necessarily to, as a criti- criticism of the film, but it, everything felt so sort of layered on, and particularly the ending. The ending is so mawkish and, and sentimental. And it just didn't work for me. And I, I, it felt like 
maybe perhaps a, a lack of confidence or maybe it was more to do with the audience that this film was appealing to and trying to kind of stylistically and formally uh, present the film to such a kind of mainstream audience um, to, to, to risk not being, the, the film not being marginalised, perhaps. Look, I'm not sure. Yeah, and hence also casting a, a superstar in the lead role who is not Iranian and then the whole thing being in English, which is absurd. Thomas? Yeah, I... I think I enjoyed this film more than uh, you two did, but I think all the points you've made are, are quite valid. Uh, look, I think it's difficult to watch the debut film by John Stewart and not expect The Daily Show, the, the movie. And I think this does feel like a film by a first-time filmmaker, and maybe we expected a bit more from Stewart, considering his background. But I think this is competent. I think this is this is this is good. It plays it safe and conventional in a way that a more experienced and confident director wouldn't. But I think this still does does the job, and I certainly. I found out a lot about some of the thinking and, and some of the craziness that was going on there. And I actually quite like the tonal shifts, and I think that's what Stuart does well in The Daily Show. He kind of contrasts some of the darker material to some sort of lighter, more comedic material, and I think it sort of made, especially the second half of the film, more bearable, because there were sort of moments of of, of merriment or, 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 or humour. Otherwise, it would have just been a really, really grim slog. Um, I raised the issue of the weird casting of a very un-Iranian looking people when I reviewed this in the break fasters last week and somebody actually uh, uh, tweeted the suggestion that perhaps it's because considering the subject matter no Iranian person would do this film for fear of repercussions towards themselves or their families which is I have no idea if that's the case or not. Have they not seen a girl walks home alone at night? Well they're, they're, they all live in America and, and it's not directly commenting on the government so look I, I don't know it did seem odd to me but look I'm still going to take my position of an actor's job is to play a character and I'm not worried about that. This film is definitely aimed at an anglophone market I mean otherwise it's inexcusable having the whole thing in English bar the odd weird uh, uh, Farsi phrase which is then subtitled which also is nonsensical um, as if these people would actually speak English and break into Farsi just for a particular turn of phrase so um, yeah I I had quite a few problems with this film but there were still some pleasures to be had as you say Thomas and I think it is perfectly competent just with some strange stylistic choices and flourishes that are uh, they do speak of uh, somebody who is new to the medium and uh, yeah look you know I, I was underwhelmed yeah look as much as I kind of confess my frustrations with it I think you're right I think you said it's a competent job it does a job it knows its audience we might not agree with the approaches that he's taken to get this to the audience perhaps but look I'm hoping he continues and does well as a feature director given it be TV's loss hopefully will be film's gain We've just been talking about Rosewater here on Plato's Cave, and I think we're done. We've been looking at civil rights films um, to, tonight on, in, in the cave. All of these films are currently playing in Melbourne. Uh, Citizen Four is screening at Cinema Nova through Madman Entertainment. Selma is on a sort of medium-sized release through Studio Canal, and Rosewater is on limited release through Transmission Films. We'll be back next week. We're going to take a look at three completely different films. We're going to do Jupiter Ascending, Eastern Boys, and a most violent year. That should be fun. You've been listening to myself, Thomas Cordwell, with Josh Nelson and Cerise Howard. Good night. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.